murder, betrayal, heartbreak, bankruptcy. This is a story about when I became a businessman in West Africa. My name is Ed Bateman on drum kits, the Big Mac. Guitar from Congo, Mr. Newell Tsumbu. So, in the last episode, I told you about how I went to Guinea-Bissau to investigate becoming a car dealer. So I got back to England, 2012, March. Switched on the news. The military of Guinea-Bissau had kidnapped the president. They'd been throwing grenades at his house and they held him hostage for a month. It turns out that a large amount of the cocaine from South America that comes to Europe comes via Guinea-Bissau because Guinea-Bissau has tons of tiny islands, each with airstrips where you can land a plane. So a lot of the cocaine from South America changes plane on these Guinea-Bissau islands. Now the whole drug trade there is organized by and profited by uh, by the military. So anytime a new president comes in and says, oh, we're going to stop the corruption, stop this drugs trade, the military says, nah, maybe not. And uh, there'll be a, an assassination or a coup or a kidnapping. So since Guinea-Bissau got its independence from Portugal in the 1960s, there had never been a president serving a full four-year or five-year term, or whatever it is, because uh, the president had always been killed or passed away, or there was a revolution. I mean, those facts were only straight in 2012 when I was there. Maybe it's different now. So I thought, okay, maybe that's not the place where I should be doing my business, you know? But I'd already decided that I wanted to sell cars and wanted to be a businessman. It was already in motion, so I couldn't stop it. I'd already, I was determined. So I thought, okay, what about this guy Ishmaela Kamara that I was introduced to that had a car dealership near the airport? I spoke to him. We started making contact a lot about finding out what kind of cars are um, in demand, in high demand in, in Gambia. Prices and stuff like that. Now, in the UK, we drive on the, um, well, our, our steering wheel is on the right, yeah? We drive on the left. Uh, but in Europe and in, in West Africa, they drive uh, on the other side of the road. So to buy cars, you've got to go to Europe. So I flew to Hamburg, Germany, investigating car dealing, walking around the car dealerships there now. I can easily say I was the only white man there. 
it's all African or Middle Eastern people involved in this business because that's where these cars are being exported to. So in Hamburg, around the port, because there's a huge port there that deals with export. So there's tons of cars. Like any of the cars in Germany that don't pass their MOT, you know, MOT is like the yearly, um, the yearly safety test that a car does or, you know, for certain requirements. In Germany, it's quite strict. So any that don't pass that basically get uh, bought up by car dealers and taken to the the areas by the port where then they can easily be sold to export dealers. So when I was in Germany, it was the same time as Gaddafi was killed, Colonel Gaddafi in, in Libya. And in Africa, in most countries that I know, the import duty, the tax is really expensive. So on like an 800 pound Mercedes in Gambia, you know, the tax might be a thousand pounds. It's 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 ridiculously high. But when when Gaddafi died, it meant there was no government in Libya, so there was no tax. There's no import duty, and that meant that every single Libyan or North African in in Europe who um, who had connections in Libya that might want to buy cars were literally going around the ports buying up every single second-hand car and sending them directly to, to Libya. So there's even a special vessel, a big ship, that would take 9,000 cars was laid on specially to go direct from Germany to Libya, Hamburg to Tripoli, every 10 days carrying 9,000 cars. That's how, how much uh, demand there was. And what this meant is I met loads of cool Libyan dudes who were in Hamburg, staying in the same hostel as me, kind of showing me around, trying to show me the ropes of how to, you know, car, you know, car dealing. You know, I was a novice car dealer, you know, trying to, you know, learn from some of the more experienced guys. So I had a bit of fun in Germany with those dudes, and I bought three Toyota Hiace vans and one Mercedes 190 and take them to the port, sent them off to, to Gambia. I flew back to England, but basically because of this whole uh, Libya thing, it meant the ports were just completely jammed up and congested with so many vehicles with massive tailbacks that a lot of stuff couldn't even get into the port and it meant that by the time my vehicles arrived in Gambia, it was delayed by about two months from what it should be. So I flew over to Gambia. I bought a, a ticket where I would stay for two weeks and sell my four vehicles. That was my plan and get back. Bear in mind, I have borrowed some of the money to do this, you know, because I was so confident, you know, went off to Europe to buy all these vehicles. Then when I got to Gambia, by this time it's July 2012, it's Ramadan. It's rainy season in the middle of their summer. It's incredibly hot. There's mosquitoes. When there's a rain, you get a lot of mosquitoes. It's Ramadan, so it means everyone's fasting. There's nowhere to get food during the day. And it took about a week to get the cars out of the harbour, out of the port and past customs. It's really complicated. So many backhanders and bribes. And it's my first time there. And then basically I've got one week to sell these cars. What it turns out is that in Ramadan, 
in a Muslim country when everyone's fasting. No one really wants to buy any cars. It's not the right time of year. In fact, no one wants to do anything. So that was a an extra obstacle in my in my the big beginning of my car dealing journey. So also because they've been sitting in the port for so long, they needed some maintenance. So I had to take them to Ishmaela's garage, get the you know um, servicing, all kinds of stuff, get them really prepared for sale. I sold the Mercedes easy. Such a popular car. Even someone wanted to buy it in the port when they saw me driving it out. I had a lot of problems driving, you know, like the police in Gambia. If they see a white man behind the wheel, instantly, you know, one of the things that, the, well, not just, I mean, they don't get a good salary, so they basically make their money from taxing the people and finding the people and just making all kinds of stuff up. But especially for me, it was a problem. You know, I'd get picked up by the police. Once I was driving down the road in one of the vans, I see a police motorcycle siren behind me, so I'm like, okay, cool, I pull over, police motorcycle goes past, there are no cars behind me, so what do I do? You know, it's completely clear, I get back onto the road. And then there's a policeman by the side, you know, waving his arms, waving me down, get off the road, get off the road, so okay, get off the road. He's like, don't you know the president's coming? I'm like, no. And it turns out they send this motorcycle down first to clear the road. Then they send about four or five big Land Rovers. Often one of them has a battering ram on the front. And soldiers on the back that will throw stones and rocks at any cars that are still on the road. And then along comes the president, Yaya Jammeh, who was yeah, dictator of Gambia for a while, until a couple years ago. You know, and so it's like, the, you know, the way it would go there is like the police would have to then jump in my car and like make me drive them to the police station where they're going to take me in and, and, you know, find me and give me some problems. But, you know, when we got to the police station, I see I'd already been fined by another guy a few days ago who was like, oh, yeah, you know, you're my guy now. If you get any problems, just let me know. Yeah, so it's like, you know, I have to pay this copper like 20 quid. But also he gives me his number, you know, and he's like, you know, I'll look after you. So now this second time at the cop station, I'm outside. I take my phone out and I phone this guy who's like traffic police. And I'm like, yeah, hey, I got some problems with this policeman here. Talk to him. You know, and he's like, you know, he sorts it out. And I just have to give this guy like, I don't know, three pounds or something like that. And he, and he lets me go. So no one wants to buy these three vans. A few people have come and looked, but no one's really biting. No one's really going for it. And I'm thinking, okay, by this time I've got three days left before my flight is due to take me back home to Bristol. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I've borrowed this money. I've got these vehicles here. I could extend my ticket, but I hate it here. It's Ramadan. Like, there's nothing to eat. It's so hot. There's rain. <laughs> it's a disaster. What am I doing here? And I'm like, this is... Uh, and I'm like, I'm running out of money. I'm like, this, oh, what, you know. And I'm basically, I'm, I'm in the hotel. And I'm just sort of, in my head, I'm sort of spiralling worse and worse. And I'm, imagine I'm going to have to go back to Bristol, get a job and be like, oh, hey, guys, sorry, I failed. You know, please, you know, you know, cut me some slack, you know. And I was like, oh, I was getting worse and worse. And then suddenly, I was just like, no! 
this is not the way this is going down. And I was like, I sat on the end of the bed for two hours, non-stop. Out loud, I said, a little mantra I'd created in a moment. It went, how did it go? I'm grateful for the abundance of wealth that I received from selling Toyota Hi-Ace vans in Gambia. Quite specific. I'm grateful for the abundance of wealth that I received from selling Toyota Hi-Ace vans in Gambia. And I was in pure desperation mode. Two hours saying this, shouting it out. And then I jump up. I get outside, I get in the van, I drive down the road about three miles, I'm just driving, I don't really know why or where, I'm just guided. Then I see a car dealership on the left, I jump out. And then I say to the guy, oh hey, I've got three of these vans, do you know anyone who'd like to buy them? What do you think he says? No. <laughs> But I'll take your number, you know, and I'll let you know if I <laughs> if I know anyone who does. So I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. A little bit sad guitar there. But I remember I've just done my mantra for two hours. Nothing's gonna knock me back. In the distance, away from the road, I can see a compound. A compound is like a house with a sort of you know a wall around it. I see this compound, and outside this compound, I can see two Toyota Hi-Ace vans, identical age and model as mine. And I just start moving towards it. There's no road, there's no path, I'm just walking through the bush. It's probably like 150 meters away. I start walking, the closer I get, I can just see more vans, you know, and then I can see like four vans, all the same model, same make same age. I say, okay, this is strange. I just keep going. I get closer and I see seven or eight vans. I think, what is going on in this place? Maybe you could build in with some sort of positive guitar line. I get closer. Then, suddenly, I get in, I get into this compound. There are 13 vans, identical to mine. And about seven or eight guys just sort of sitting there under the tree in the sun, chilling out. And I say, what's up guys? What are all these vans doing here? And the guy says, oh, our boss just bought 19 vans over on the last boat from, from Belgium, from Antwerp, to start a new taxi company. And I was like, oh, does he want three more? You know, 19's, 19 is an odd number of vans to have in a taxi company. I think 22 is better. So, and they're like, all right, cool. So I basically sell the vans to those guys. I don't make any profit, but I get pretty much back what I've, what I've spent, you know, because you've got to pay for the vans, pay for the customs duty, pay for the shipping cost, pay for my flight. So I'm like, oh cool, I get the vans, sold them, I get my money back. By the time I actually get the cash, I get the cash about a m about two hours before my flight is departing. And so the Gambian currency is Dallasy, 
and the highest denomination note they have would be the equivalent of a one pound note. So they've got one pound and 50p notes. And I've sold these three vans. I've basically, I put, I opened a bank account, put some money in the bank and transferred it. And the rest I took in cash. I think I took 6,000 pounds in cash, which was the, the limit that you were allowed to take out of the country. So I'm there with a backpack with basically 6,000 pounds worth of one pound and 50p notes. You can imagine how heavy that might be. Walking around Gambia, trying to change this money back to pounds. You know, there's a lot of foreign exchange, currency exchange places. Not really set up for that kind of quantity. And uh, I, I managed to change my money back, get to the airport just in time. I then got 6,000 pounds in cash. Um, and some drinks as well in a bag, and I'm going through the scanner. And the thing is, I don't think the scanner works when you're going out of the country in Gambia. They basically only want to scan you on the way in. And so they can tax you. If they see you with with two mobile phones, they'll try and make you pay import duty. But I guess they focus all the time on that and not what's going out of the country. So I was fine. So I got back to Bristol with my money and my life. And I should have stopped there, really. But I was like, basically borrowed some more money, went to Denmark, went to Portugal, I bought seven more vans and just sent them straight to Africa. <laughs> but I didn't need to fly there this time because I had my contacts, Ishmaela and another guy called LT, Lamentore, who was helping me out as well. So I sent four vans to Ishmaela, three to Lamin. while I masterminded the whole operation from Bristol. So I think I sold three of the vans. They, well, they sold them on my behalf, sent me the money. All good, took their commission, everything's fine. But four of the vans, we didn't have too many takers. So instead, so they could earn some revenue, we turned them into a taxi company. So I had, you know, Bateman taxis riding up and down the highway between Serekunda and Brikama in, in Gambia. With these like sort of minibus taxis where you know people just pile in and pay I don't know 20 pence or whatever it is and just you know go up the highway as far as they want to go and this was all working fine and then Ishmaela said to me oh we can make a lot of money from selling second-hand van tires. He said that's where some real money is. And he told me about all the different sizes and quantities that people would buy. Because basically, in a, in a lot of African countries and Middle Eastern countries, they like the same kind of vehicles. They like these robust, reliable German and, and Japanese cars and vans. That's what's really popular. You find the same makes and models that were just, you know, a real, a massive success in one place will be really popular in others. So the certain size of tyre that these 4x4s and these vans require are in high demand in all of these different countries. So trying to get hold of that, these sizes and quantities in Europe can be really difficult. But I started looking around and I found a guy called Lee, who ironically lived in Devon, where I came from. 
and um, Lee Lee said that he could get all the sizes I wanted, but he was really fed up with African and Middle Eastern customers buying from him and being unreliable and messing him around. And he liked the fact that I was English, and he was like, look, I'd be happy to put all of my business through you if you could take care of everything I've got and sell it. If you could buy all, you know, all my tires, you know, I wouldn't need to deal with anyone else. So I was like, okay, cool. So I went, you know, I, I went down to meet him, saw all of his stock, all of these sizes and quantities were perfect. Found out how much we could sell them for, spoke to Ishmaela, everything was cool. Ishmaela had like government contracts where he could take containers uh, away from the harbour and play the on a kind of a secure bill and then pay the customs duty afterwards when they've been sold. So everything was in place. Let's change the story up a bit. Let's go to a kind of Afrobeat groove in A minor. Give us a roll, Big Mac. So, I gave Lee the money for the first container. So these are 40-foot containers. They'll, you know, they get put on a on a transporter driven down from London. And I told my brother, and I said, "Oh yeah, I sent this, sending this container of tires to Africa, probably going to make this amount of money, this amount of profit." And my brother was like. I guess he maybe shares similar um, uncalculated business instincts as me, somehow. And he was like, why send one, con you know, because I was thinking I'd make probably five £5,000 profit per container. And he was like, he was like, why send one container and make £15,000 when we could send three containers and make £15,000? And I'm like, yeah, and he's like, yeah, totally. So before the first container has arrived, while three containers are still at sea, we've got, um, yeah, so before the first one arrived, we've got three on the way there. You know, I don't go, you know, instead of starting small, I usually, I go all in. You know, sort of a character trait I've learned about myself. So at this time as well, I met a new new girlfriend in London called Natalie. And I was living in Bristol and she was like, oh, why do you live in, in Bristol? Why don't you live in London? I'd, you know, I'd be going up to see her every Friday evening, come back on Monday every week, you know, waking up at waking up at like 5am on, on Monday morning to drive back and go to work. And she was like, oh, why don't you move to London? I was like, oh yeah, sure, that makes a lot of sense. And I was thinking, well, what am I going to do in London? Well, I'm going to be so rich from my from my business. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll study something, maybe study singing, study pop singing. So I did borrow some extra cash just to pay for a year's tuition in a place in a, in a vocal school. Can you cue 
cue the sad guitar playing again. Now that sounds too happy, more sad. Imagine the sadness. Oh! So I'm on the mega bus, right? On my way up to London. I actually get dumped by Natalie on the day I was moving to London. You know, over message. On like a... Early version of WhatsApp. In uh, 2013. So I arrive in London that day, I'm a bit upset, and I go to, I'm, I'm, I'm around Tower Bridge in central London. I was a bit upset and I, I had four cans of K-cider, it's like super strength cider. Some people say it's like the kind of stuff that tramps drink, but it's actually just, it's a strong drink, but it's like really sweet and delicious. Anyone who says it's kind of tramper is some people who haven't actually tried it. So I'm drinking like four cans of that and I'm standing on Tower Bridge and I'm upset, you know, I'm, I'm crying a bit. I'm, I'm there for about two hours. No one comes to talk to me or anything like that. I'm just there alone. After two hours, I turn around. Just as I turn around, I see four policemen and women about a meter away from me with their arms up, about to jump on me. At the very moment, I must have felt them. And, and, it, and basically, it turns out that Tower Bridge is like a very popular suicide spot. I had no idea about. And they basically had... There was a police boat waiting under the bridge. There was a helicopter out of sight because they thought I was going to jump off and commit suicide. Yeah, so that was my first day moving back to London. But it didn't stop there, so... Within about a week, my four taxis, two of them crashed. Two of them had engine failures. And then our containers started arriving one by one. Now it turns out, the, the our business partner Lee, that we trust, you know, he was always inviting us out on fishing trips. He was a really nice guy, you know, we got along really well. Turns out the t containers arriving in those tires, the tires arriving in the containers, um, actually weren't the sizes that we had ordered. I weren't all the, the quantities of stuff that he, sh the quality of stuff that he showed us as well. So, so basically, because we trusted him so much, we didn't supervise the loading because to travel down there was quite a way. Um, yeah, this was our business partner. We were. Yeah, it was a mistake to, you know, to trust him like that. So, you know, we spoke to Lee and he's like, oh, hey, look, I'm going to sort you out. You know, I'm getting some new, get some new tires together. I'm getting everything ready for you. I'm going to sort you out. Everything's going to be fine. And he basically, he was just kind of string us, stringing us along because it would be, you know, something would happen. It would, things would get put off. So we decided to go down to surprise him. Me and my brother drove down there from London. 
Um, he was a bit aggressive. Luckily, you know, it didn't go too sour. He was obviously very surprised to see us turning up there. And, um, you know, he maintained that he was going to sort us out. And then when he left, I got chatting to the farmer who owned some land that Lee was renting. And what he said was that Lee had basically been messing around a few other people. There was a gang of Hell's Angels wanting to kill him. They were saying to the farmer, hey, just give us a signal and we'll, you know, we'll come and get rid of this guy. Just give us the opportunity. They, want, they wanted him dead. There was, he put me in touch with another guy who Lee had messed around who owed him some owed some money to him he owed money to uh, and another guy who had a whole like dossier on him about all of the, all his crimes so basically he was a professional criminal professional con man which you know professional liar which you know, unfortunately these are the kind of people you believe you know if, if someone's a professional liar it's their job to, to be good at that so we were inexperienced in business that's what happened it's not a mistake I make again, so, but basically, me and my brother were, get, were getting a case together, information we were going to give to the Fraud Squad and Consumer Trading Standards Bureau. Then we get a call from the farmer, and, Lee, and we find out that the night before, Lee had murdered someone over an argument over who was going to take the next taxi on a Friday night outside the pub. He wanted the next taxi, so he just killed the person in front of him. Subsequently went to jail for life. It's getting a groove. Yeah, rhythm. So basically, within a, just a couple of weeks after moving to London, my four taxis income stream had suddenly disappeared. I had no girlfriend. I didn't really have any friends in London at the time. My business had completely uh, fallen apart. I'd been ripped off con. Between us, me and my brother, we lost about £30,000. All in the space of a few weeks, and it's like, I was so broke, you know, I, I was then on a, I was made insolvent, yeah, so like bankruptcy. Be going into the supermarket and it's like, I'm eating 30 pence tins of, of sardines, couscous and frozen peas. I'm just walking around there so broke. Yeah, and, and I'm not doing any music because, you know, I was so focused on this business. It's almost funny now how so many things went wrong at the same time. Comical even. Timing, you know? I'd be there, you know, on the on the un London Underground, on the tube, crying. I listen to a lot of Motown, I love soul. 
and I'd have to like, I have all these songs on my phone, Motown songs, but I have to remove all the love, delete all the love songs, and just try and find songs that I can listen to just to keep me in a good mood while I'm moving through London. So, one of the things I learned from this, obviously you have to start small in any kind of business and really kind of risk test. Think about every possible scenario that could go wrong. Play it out and see how you can protect yourself from it. And really, you, if there's anything wrong in your life, you can't solve all your problems at the same time. That's too difficult. You know, when I, I had problems with my with my income, I had no work, no music, not really many friends locally. Uh, love life was no good. But it's like go for a bit. Let's go for more positive guitaring. We, we need to we need to uplift. You know, now we're we're getting to the. Oh, let's go to the zoo. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, E, Sukus in E, yeah? One, five, four, five. I found myself a job, a little temporary job, and that helps with the social life, you know. You start to meet, you know, new friends and stuff. Found a band, found, you know, different connections in London. Started playing with African bands, playing with other kinds of bands. And the things, you know, heartbreak and stuff, that wears off over time. But it wears off a lot easier when everything else in your life is uh, is more in place. So yeah, job, friends, music, and everything just starts to improve. After a year, the insolvency order was lifted. You know, my finances started to recover, and I decided that. I'm not going to do any more business and I'm going to stick to music. I'm going to stick to playing bass where these kind of things are, you know, something that I know about, you know? So, in the next episode, um, I'm going to talk to you about how I actually then formed a band, Ed Bateman's West African Love Affair. Then ended up in Australia, going on tour with Harry Krishna musicians, and how that changed my life. Thank you to the Big Mac and Nibble Tumbu.